Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, given a sharp rally we have seen in the fixed income market so far in 2019, many investors are asking themselves, what's next? So to try to get the answer to this question and others, let's bring on Tad Ravel. Uh, Tad is a chief investment officer for fixed income at TCW. TCW has about $191 billion under management, uh, and it is based in Los Angeles. Tad, uh, thanks so much for joining us. I wonder, just to start off, if you could give us a sense, uh, where do you think we are in the credit cycle right now? We think we're pretty late in the credit cycle. And when we think about the economic cycle and the investing cycle, we actually try not to think about it in the narrower sense of the credit cycle, but rather in a more expansive way, in the sense that I think that a perusal of the last 20 or 30 years of economic downturns suggests that we actually live in a world of interlocked credit asset price business cycles, like a three-legged stool. You knock out one one leg, in this case, maybe the credit, and you're in inevitably going to have a decline in risk-based asset prices as well as an economic downturn. And there's many reasons that we do think that it's a, in the late stage of the credit cycle or the asset price cycle, as we put it, and we can discuss that if that's uh, of interest. So given that we are in the later stages of the credit cycle, as you say, where are you uh, and TCW seeing value right now? Well, the, the way we, we think about it in terms of a, a late cycle playbook for fixed income is that rather than think about the fixed income market as a risk-on, risk-off type of uh, flavoring that you have to think about it in a little bit with a little bit more nuance and a little bit more complexity. So what that means is that as you look to your fixed income allocations, in our view, you should be thinking about it as really having three pieces to it, three broad pieces. One piece is sort of your traditional risk-off type of securities like treasuries, and they're there for liquidity and for maintenance of some um, hedging risk against the uh, potentiality of declines in risk-based asset prices. You're supposed to have bendable assets, and by bendable assets, what we're typically referring to are things like investment-grade credit, AAA-rated commercial mortgages, things that are subject to marking to market volatility, but assets that will not go into bankruptcy or provide haircuts or discounts to principal through some type of a workout situation. And so you balance your portfolio between bendable and risk-off type assets, and you do your darndest to try to avoid allocations to breakable assets. And by breakable assets, what we're talking about are assets that are going to experience principal haircuts that are, so to speak, get swept into the late cycle environment that inevitably uh, has a degree of debt for equity swapping associated with it. Bankruptcies, distressed debt exchanges, rescue financing, that sort of stuff. Understood. I'm just I'm curious what you think about the quality of the U.S. high yield market right now. There's lots of people talking about how investment grade quality is deteriorating with so many triple B's. Um, and we're also at the same time seeing more rising stars this year. That is high yield names are getting upgraded to investment grade. Does that mean the high yield quality is getting worse if the best of the names are leaving? Well, um, when, when we ask questions about high yield, we're probably supposed to also think about that a little bit more expansively because the, the sibling 
the uh, the nearly identical twin of the high yield market is the uh, bank loan, the uh, syndicated bank loan market. And the syndicated bank loan market has always been another vehicle by which companies or leveraged companies or below investment grade companies have been able to, to, to borrow. And that has been basically the part of the credit markets, the leveraged credit markets that has grown so in, in such an outsized way over the course of this cycle. In the leveraged bank loan market, we see absolutely substantial evidence of, of major deterioration in terms of the quality of underwriting that has gone on over the course of the cycle. And the simplest way to put it, and I'm sure it's been spoken to many times, is that this was a marketplace that, number one, was a lot smaller 10 years ago, but number two, and more importantly, was dominated with covenant-heavy issuance. Covenant light issuance, which now is something like 80% of this market, is something that basically came along uh, over the course of this cycle. And covenant light lending, almost by definition, means that the borrower has substantial ability to work um, mostly exclusively for the shareholders to the detriment of bondholders. So I think that when you look at leverage lending in a sort of a, a holistic way, the only conclusion that you can reach is actually is that the quality of underwriting in general, is actually rather poor. And well, are there any sectors in particular in this leveraged loan market that are concerning to you? Uh, well, the, the, the leveraged loan market has, uh, has found its way into most every nook and cranny, but I think that you know, maybe, maybe a, one way to make the discussion just a little bit more pointed or a little bit more concrete, if I could, maybe I'll put it this way, because I think People talk about covenants, and it sounds like maybe it should be important, but maybe people don't totally get why it matters, and maybe an example uh, helps that. I think, first of all, to, to personalize it, is consider the fact that when you buy a home and you take out a mortgage on it, you may not think about the fact that you're agreeing to a covenant, but you're agreeing to a very important covenant, that, that being essentially that when the day comes that you sell that house, the first use of proceeds is to pay off the lender. You don't get to sell your house, put the money in the bank, take a trip around the world, come back, have a discussion with your lender, maybe I'll pay you back now. That type of covenant protection is necessary so that there isn't a separation of collateral from the lender, the house, so to speak, from the mortgage loan. In the, in the bank loan market, it doesn't work that way. We've seen numerous examples of situations in which companies have transferred assets, sold divisions, sold important assets of the business, and with the proceeds of, that, of those funds, they make dividends to shareholders. And that sounds like a good thing, except that from the point of view of the lender, I'm watching you sell valuable pieces of your business, and the money is basically leaving the collateral package, which is to say your company or specific entities in your company. It's going to shareholders and leaving me, the bondholder, with the potentiality of a uh, not exactly an empty shell, but a uh, a shell that is emptying in the process and reducing my protections. The important, the critical point here, of course, is that credit needs to be understood not just statically, how do you look vis-a-vis -vis your borrower today, but what it could look like in the event that that business got stressed. As As bankers love to say, there is no genius, so to speak, in making the loan. All of the hard work is involved in collecting on the loan. Yep, interesting. Very interesting move. We've had this the big move up in the, the market and investors are trying to figure out, uh, do I go to quality? And uh, uh, lots of questions being asked by fixed income investors. Uh, thanks for some of these answers. Uh, Tad Ravel, uh, Tad is the Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles.
The ride-sharing company Lyft is about to begin its IPO Roadshow, and investors are pouring through its prospectus to better understand the company's business and financial prospects. So to help us evaluate the Lyft story is our good friend Shira Ovide. Shira is a technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, she joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Shira, thanks so much for being with us. You know, when you take a look at the uh, prospectus for Lyft, one thing that jumps out is it is not profitable. It lost $900 million last year. So what are investors looking at to try to get a sense of the prospects for this company and maybe valuation and so on? Yeah. So look, there's two things that investor, two big things that investors will be looking at. One is the rate of growth, which is very fast. We should yep. give them credit for, you know, revenue is sort of doubling or so uh, year over year, which is an impressive growth rate for a company with $2 billion in revenue last year. The other thing is Lyft points people to a number of metrics that are intended to show the improving financial economics of the main business it's in, which is you know, single-use, on-demand rides. Right. And the piece that I wrote about was on something sort of nerdy, so everybody hold on to your ears, um, <laughs> called the take rate. That's the kind of common vernacular in a business like Lyft, which is the effective share of money that Lyft gets from every dollar right. of that people are, <clears throat> excuse me, that people are spending on rides. Right. So when I take a ride in a Lyft, I think the, the you know, Uber or Lyft or whatever gets 20 or 30 cents of every dollar I spend. Is that what you're talking about? The take That's rate? exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Okay. And, and, and it's the complica it's a complicated formula because it's not like I pay $20 for a Lyft ride and the driver gets some portion and, and Lyft gets some portion. It's a complicated formula, but effectively, yes. Yep. Uh, Lyft is keeping something like 25 or 30 cents of every dollar that that I spend on and, that Lyft, and how how is that trending? Or is it's Lyft it's up. It's up significantly. Uh, you know that that percentage yep. is is going more and more towards Lyft Lyft's favor, which again Lyft is trying to say, look, yes, we our losses are extremely large, but you can see that we're getting more efficient with our spending over time. The problem that I wrote about is that number that that take rate that efficiency rate for lyft is getting muddier and muddier with every passing moment and that's because of the changing nature of lyft's business so lyft bought a company called motivate uh just recently motivate is the company behind city bike that's and right. these yep. other kind yep. of city uh bike rental programs lyft also offers electric scooters in Love a dozen or so yep. u.s cities and the distinction here is when i rent a scooter or a bicycle from lyft there's no driver there's no driver there's no driver with <laughs> so whom to share revenue all of the they money. keep a hundred percent of the revenue and so that affects the company's overall take rate it lifts it higher and higher and it says so it very clouds little that underlying business a yeah bit. Okay. It so investors need to be prepared to kind of dig through that a little bit right exactly yeah, that, that is going to be a complicated number for them to sift through so one of the interesting things about the lyft ipo is they're first. They're coming out before Uber. Is there a sense that that is an advantage for them? I mean, how, how are they trying to spin it, do you think? I know there's a lot of game theory about this race uh, between Uber and Lyft to the public markets. I'm not sure there's really much of an advantage. I think, yes, Lyft as the smaller player, as the more focused on just on-demand ride player, they do have an advantage from 
going first, from getting more attention than they would have if they were after Uber, um, and from kind of being able to focus investors on, these are the markets we think you should pay attention to, these are the metrics we think are important to our business, and they get to plant a flag in the ground on those points. I don't think Uber has any disadvantage from being second. They're so large, they're going to suck up so much oxygen when and if they do go public this year. Um, so I, I think this was the natural order of IPO timing. Yeah, it's interesting. As, as you look at this model, the Lyft model, and uh, presumably when we get the, the, the numbers from Uber, it'll be similar. The uh, the path to profitability, it's not nearly as clean as it was for some of the advertising-driven tech companies that also came out of big valuations because you do have to subsidize the, the these drivers. Are you getting a sense from investors or the marketplace that people are comfortable that there is some path to profitability for these companies? I, I hope so, because <laughs> otherwise I don't see how these businesses can survive. But yeah, you're right that Snap, Snapchat, for example, is a company that had enormous losses yep. when that company went public, really staggering losses and, and negative free cash flow. But as you said, there are examples from other advertising-focused businesses like Google and Facebook that have become very profitable. And, and that business model is well understood by investors. What Lyft and Uber are doing is... Is, is a totally different thing and it's really going to be hard to model this out because you don't know the ultimate economics of this business you don't know the total market size of this business it, i think it's all just a big string of question marks yeah i think it's i I'm, I'm guessing just from you talking to some investors that the company's kind of positioning themselves is that that total addressable market out there we think it's just huge. We don't know, and, and quite frankly, we're probably underreporting it because more and more people are, you know, really turning to ride sharing across, you know, different vehicles and so on and so forth. And Bloomberg Business Week even wrote a, a story a couple of weeks ago about maybe peak auto, and one of the reasons that we may be at peak auto production globally is because of the rise of ride sharing. So I suspect that that's what these companies will try to play up as the long term. That's the bullish case on on both Uber and Lyft, right? Is that the transportation market, the the amount of money that people spend on buying cars and operating cars is large. And if Lyft and Uber can can steal some of that spending, that's going to be an enormous business. But I just don't know whether rides on demand uh, will ever be that big outside of a handful of cities in the world where it's sort of appealing and viable. Is there a sense, just uh, switching from Lyft, is there a sense for Uber what the the timing is on that IPO. I know they they talked about it being uh, you know obviously later in the year, but it, any sense of whether it's uh, kind of first half or second half? I, I certainly the the last time I asked around, it sounded more like second quarter um, than second half of the year. But uh, who who knows? I think a lot of uh, a lot of the timing got affected by the government shutdown, which impacted the ability of Uber and Lyft to get feedback on their um, their draft IPO filings. So. We'll, we'll see what happens. And the timing on Lyft, I mean, they keep saying it's imminent. Do you have any sense of whether it's <laughs> how imminent it might be? It seems like they're going to meet with investors later this month. Okay. And then I assume the listing would happen either late March or early April. Interesting. And Soon. I think, the, yeah, this will be interesting. I mean, it would be interesting to see about the valuation, what kind of valuation they get in the marketplace. And the question is, will Uber come out at a premium to yep. Lyft? Presumably, I guess they would because it's bigger. It's a little bit hard to know because. On the one hand, Lyft is growing much faster. On the other hand, Uber's business is much more diverse, for better or for worse, right? They do restaurant food delivery. They operate in many, many countries, whereas Lyft is pretty much just the U.S. and Canada. 
Lyft owns stakes in all of these global ride-hailing hailing companies, so it may deserve a premium or maybe not. Got it. Interesting. Very interesting. We'll have to keep on top of this one. Shira Ovaday, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, despite today's sell-off of over 1%, the S&P this year to date is up about 10%. Uh, and after the meltdown we saw in the fourth quarter, the question is, is this a continuation of the bull market? Is this more of a bear market kind of rally, if you will? To help us kind of dig into that is Bill Smead. Uh, Bill is the chief executive officer and chief investment officer of Smead Capital Management, a little over $2.1 billion under management. Uh, Bill joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, so Bill, what do you make of what we've seen in the marketplace over the last three or four months? Is this, um, is this performance we've seen in the, in the beginning of this year real? Oh, it's always real. <laughs> it's real money, right? It, it's, it's real money. Uh, it, in, the, in the long run, the market's a weighing machine. And in the short run, it's kind of a snapshot. And uh, we fall into the camp of people that believes that the excitement around e-commerce was a parabolic bubble. And we've got a chart that shows over the last 45 years, there, it's the third biggest bubble behind the dot-com and the ridiculous uh, housing thing that we did in 04 to 06. So if you believe that, it, we... We would not trust the market uh, if, in it, in fact, it's going to continue to be led by a the the most uh, aggressive growth sector in a ten-year stretch where growth is completely pasted value. Right, right. Let's talk about. Um, I was going to ask you about some some sectors and some some names you're in, but let's let's lead off on one that is not a good story for you today. Kroger uh, put out some weaker than expected numbers, stock down uh, today around thirteen percent. I know that's a, a holding of yours. What what happened with the company this quarter? Well, you have to go back to what got us involved. Okay, uh, which which is coming up on two years ago. Amazon announced they were going into the grocery store that's business. Right. We're in Seattle. Our headquarters yep. is about. 10, 12 blocks from Amazon. And at the time they bought Whole Foods, they said they bought it uh, 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 for reasons of, you know, accelerating their move into the grocery store business. But those of us that were watching their beta tests on Amazon Fresh, uh, Fresh locally, were seeing that no one was using Amazon Fresh. Right. And, and you've got a young very highly it's a target paid. market in Seattle. It's a target yeah. market. Yeah. And if Amazon Fresh isn't working in Seattle, it's not working. So then they had to try something else. Uh, so what happened was Kroger stock fell all the way to 21, and that's what got us involved. Yep. Okay. It sent rebounded to about 33, and we just stayed with the original position, and now it's back down to about $24, $25 a share. And we believe, we sincerely believe that uh, the grocery business is going to be to Amazon what invading Russia was for Napoleon. <laughs> right. I, let, let, let's go to that. First of all, for you've been in this business forever, 30 some odd years in money management business. When you have a position like this, it's a pretty significant position for you. It takes a hit today. What, what do you do on that position? Well, when you're a value guy and mm -hmm. value has significantly underperformed growth over the course of the last two or three years, uh, 
it, 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 it's kind of a body blow. Yep. You, you hate to have X amount of, of the value of your portfolio get hit on one stock like that. But it, it's been a fairly regular exercise <laughs> for the last couple of years. So we're, we're, we're just getting used to it. We're, right. we're getting, because uh, the fact of the matter is that our portfolio trades at about 12 times earnings in a market that trades about 16. And so we're paying way less for our future luck than, than the indexers are. And, and, and really how you do relative to the index is a combination of what you buy, but also what you paid to participate in what you buy. And, and that's where the value is. If, if, if uh, we analyze a company and use very, very high interest rates to do an intrinsic value calculation, and there's a big spread there, as there are with most of the things we own right now, uh, we, we know that time is our ally. And so we're operating in a five to 10 year continuum and most of the market participants are working in a six-month continuum. If you're in a six-month continuum and you get kicked around on a stock like Kroger, you're sunk because you, right. you're so, not going to get so, them. So do you take the? Do you just say we still like this position? The thesis is still there, and we buy more on the weakness. Yeah, the the grocery business has a history of not being very good <laughs> unless there's some inflation. It's actually good for the grocery store companies to have the produce and the meat and and those ingredients going up in price. And they just aren't going up right now. And so therefore, it was going to be a more difficult time. But I think if you dig into the numbers with, with Kroger, what they're doing to insulate themselves and be the grocery store of millennials 10 years from now is investing in online and pick up at the store and, 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 and in their mobile capability. That, that stuff costs money and they're doing it, but they're doing it so that they are as successful in the future as they've been in the past. 10 seconds, why do you think uh, this uh, grocery business will be very difficult for Amazon, as you mentioned? Oh, well, well the, the answer is having the physical stores is a huge positive attribute. In fact, having physical stores, when, when, when you're doing anything online, Target said in December, 28% of their online orders were picked up at the store. Yep. That saves them $5 or $7 per delivery. Interesting. And, and that's real money. Good. Bill Smead, thanks so much for, for being here with us. I know on a tough day for you on, with one of your big names here. Bill Smead, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of Smead Capital Management. Uh, talking value investing, which has been underperforming and tough to, relative to growth uh, in this bull market. Uh, talking a little bit about the supermarket business, which continues to be a challenging business as it deals with changing consumer tastes as well as the Amazon effect. Well, yesterday, Facebook had some very interesting news. CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, published a 3,200-word plan to, quote, pivot to privacy. Uh, this is obviously in response to consumer backlash against big tech as it relates to privacy. So to help us parse through what is going on in big tech and privacy, we welcome Amy Webb. Uh, Amy is a professor of strategic foresight at the NYU Stern School of Business. She is also a founder of the Future Today uh, Institute. She joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, professor Webb is also the author of a new book entitled The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Uh, professor, thank you so much for joining us. What are the main takeaways of this book in terms of warping humanity? Sure. So I think the, the pieces of this that everybody needs to understand is that for a very long time, our um, 
market economy, free market economy has enabled uh, big tech companies to flourish and to deliver great returns for their investors. The challenge is that during that process, um, oftentimes there have been decisions made in relation to privacy uh, and automation and a bunch of other things um, that have started to uh, make the general public a little nervous, and that is sending ripples uh, throughout the hill. And so what we could be facing, I think, in the future is uh, regulation coming from from new places, which is neither good for investors nor good for, for all of us who are going to be living with the future of AI. Well, let's, let's talk about AI and kind of specifically about AI. AI. What are the I guess the applications and implications of AI that you think are most uh, concerning. Sure. Well, you know, there's a lot of misplaced optimism and fear when it comes to artificial intelligence, and it very much feels like something out in the distance. In fact, it's been with us for many years. Most businesses, in some ways, use AI, whether it's their risk and compliance systems or the autocomplete in their inboxes. Uh, all of us are using AI all of the time. Now, the challenges come in to play when we have a consolidation of power among just a few companies with a fairly homogenous group of people whose job it is to make decisions for all of us. And, you know, for a lot of businesses that are currently choosing which AI in the cloud systems to use, um, you know, which uh, automated services to use, which frameworks, um, you know, they're, they're having to choose now between uh, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, and Google, which means that they're going to have to start making much, much smarter decisions. Right. So when we think, so you identify in your book a number of, of players to be con concerned with. You mentioned Google, mm -hmm. uh, Amazon. So what specific? So who are is there, are they just U.S. companies or are there also sure. companies outside the U.S.? Sure. So there are nine companies that are essentially building the future of AI. Doesn't mean that there aren't others uh, in the mix. However, these nine. Uh, have the majority of patents. They own uh, the, the biggest part of market share. They attract the best talent. Uh, they have the most significant amount of funding. So, so these nine companies are in China. Uh, there are three, the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. In the United States, uh, I like to call them the G-Mafia. <laughs> the G-Mafia. <laughs> so those six are uh, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, Facebook, and Apple. Yep. It uh, doesn't mean that Uber and Salesforce and others aren't in the mix doing great things, but these nine companies, for the most part, have consolidated power um, and, and are, are pulling the shots. And so what you mentioned regulatory risk, and I think for investors, the big concern out there has always been regulatory risk not coming out of Europe the east you know the european union has always been tough on us tech going all the way back to microsoft and the operating system and and now they're obviously you know tough on some of the social media companies but boy when you bring mark zuckerberg and uh, some of these other ceos in front of congress that's a different game do you think the us congress has any appetite for regulating big tech well, I think this new Congress certainly does. Right. <laughs> uh, and but but that's that's a problem for many reasons. First of all, uh, you know, there, listen, there's a lot of smart engineers working at these big companies, and I, I actually don't believe that any of these companies are intentionally doing anything evil. I think just you know when you get to be big and you've got different business units and staff, sometimes they don't all talk to each other, and you got to start making quick decisions because investors, you know, are are hungry for high returns and and good margins. So, um, the challenge is that. You know, we're going to have one too many calls for privacy, one too many sets yep. of constituents who get really upset. Um, and given who's currently in Congress right now, I I can guarantee you that we're, they're you know they're they're looking at regulatory action, which is which is is going to be bad for all of these companies, but also for us because any regulations that get constructed now are definitely not going to keep pace with how technology exactly. evolves. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the issues we've seen in some other tech tech industries. They're always or oftentimes behind behind the terms. Uh, Amy Webb, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Amy is professor of strategic foresight at NYU Stern School of Business, also a founder of the Future Today Institute. Her book, The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Thank you very much, uh, Professor. That's very interesting about technology. Again, the big risk for tech investors is U.S. regulatory oversight, and that's something they want to avoid at all, all uh, costs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.